Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> so on this uh, last evening of our <clears throat> month-long retreat, and just the middle for uh, a number of you who are here for two months, <clears throat> I wanted to see if I could give a talk that would be relevant to both uh, the departing yogis and the continuing yogis, um, and uh, wanted to talk some on the practical aspects of practice, practical supports for practice, and also um, explore the bigger picture of the gifts of practice that we are cultivating here. So <clears throat> I'll see if I can, if I can do that. <clears throat> First, what I, I wanted to uh, start off with is uh, a, um, a favorite discourse of mine um, that uh, is uh, in the uh, Udana called uh, the Magiya Sutta. Uh, and this is a, a really um, wonderful discourse where the Buddha gives some instructions for supports for practice. And it uh, involves a story of this um, this new monk who, uh, by whatever good karma, was the uh, was the attendant of the Buddha, and it was just the two of them together, and nobody else was around. Uh, and uh, this uh, wet behind the ears uh, monk was. Uh, enjoying the time with, uh, with the Buddha and taking care of him. And uh, he, he said, uh, one, one day I'd like to go for um, alms round. And the Buddha said, certainly go for, for your alms round. And uh, on his way uh, back from alms, he discovered this really great spot for practicing. This is what he says. I'll just give a little bit of the feel for it. Um, <clears throat> having walked into Jantu village for alms round, after the meal, on returning from collecting alms food, he approached the bank of the river Kimikala. As he was walking and wandering up and down beside the river for exercise, he saw a pleasant and charming mango grove. On seeing it, he thought, this mango grove is very pleasant and charming. It is eminently suitable for the endeavor of practicing meditation. Um, if the Lord were to give me permission, I would come and endeavor in this mango grove. So he goes back to the Buddha and he says, I found this great place to practice. It's kind of like hitting upon spirit rock, right? Meditation hall. Wow, cool. And then he says, uh, hey, can I go and, uh, can I go and practice? And the Buddha senses that he's pretty new to practice and in a 
what seems like a, a compassionate uh, reply says, um, as we're alone, Megillah, wait a while until some other bhikkhus come. And Megillah, though, has very strong zeal, that chanda idipada that I spoke of the other night. And he says, <clears throat> with a little of what in Pali is called chutzpah, uh, <laughs> says, uh, Revered sir, the Lord has nothing further that should be done and nothing to add to what has been done. But for me, revered sir, there's something further that should be done and something to add to what has to be do- has been done. If you give me your permission, Lord, I would go to that mango grove to endeavor in meditation. The Buddha replies again, look, we're alone. Why don't you just wait until some others come? Figures maybe you could give him a little bit more instruction in, in practice and give him some teachings. But Magia is very determined. And once again, he replies, um, look, you've done what you needed to do. I really need to do this. Give me permission. And as the Buddha says, the proverbial third time is a charm. Magia, what can I say? As you're... You're talking of endeavoring to practice. Do now, Magia, as you see fit. That was one of his standard lines. You know, do as you see fit. So Magia goes and uh, goes to the mango grove and sits and tries to practice. <clears throat> and this is what he says, <clears throat> or this is what happens. Now, now, while the venerable Magia was staying at that mango grove, there kept occurring in him three unwholesome kinds of thoughts. Thoughts of sense desire, thoughts of ill will, and cruel thoughts. Then Magia reflected, it is amazing, it is astounding, indeed remarkable. Although I've gone forth out of faith from home to the homeless state, yet I'm overwhelmed by these three unwholesome kinds of thoughts. So, if you have a few of those, maybe you can relate. He goes back to the Buddha and he says, you'll never guess what happened. (laughs) And the Buddha says, oh, okay, yes. He's not too surprised. And then he says, um, when the mind deliverance or when one is not fully mature, when the mind deliverance is as yet immature, Megia, there are five things that lead to its maturity. What are the five? And this is what I, I'll share with you now. Five supports, and hopefully this will be applicable both for people going, uh, going home and having the second half of their retreat this next month as they go home and those who are having the second month here these are supports for practice first support good friends refuge in the sangha and you probably have all seen the the power of it while you've been here you know maybe there are times when you are energy has flagged a bit or there's been doubts or 
challenges, but you see people around you who you've probably developed, you've developed one relationship or another with, uh, and, but have felt their sincerity and their support, and uh, it keeps you going. And it keeps you going whether you're, uh, whether you're here or you're at home. Like-minded friendship, the whole of the holy life, as, as the Buddha said. <clears throat> Refuge in the Sangha. This is hard enough to do on our own, in our own mind, but without the support of knowing that others have done it before or are doing it with you, that this has been done for thousands of years and people have actually awakened through it. It gives us courage and faith and inspiration. And when we're relatively new in our practice, you know, that image of uh, a tender sapling that, uh, that the Buddha gives where when it's first planted, you want to protect it from not too much sunlight or too little or uh, just the right amount of water and take care of it from uh, um, uh, animals uh, invading and chewing on it. But when the roots are deep and the sapling becomes a, a vital, strong tree, then that sapling becomes a, a, a great tree that can give shade to all who come so in your practice, and many of you are more than just tender saplings as you've been practicing for years and years, but to, to know how important it is to surround ourselves with, with good friends, how powerful it is. And for those going home, you won't have the, the refuge that the ones who are Staying here will have the support of of this center and uh, and like-minded friends sitting throughout the days. But uh, just to remember to surround yourself with with good friends, and whether it's sitting groups or um, Dharma buddies or listening to talks. When I first got into this uh, this stuff, I would have a cassette. It was the days of cassette. Uh, just in my car all the time, just because I, I, I was living in New York and I was there was no scene in New York at the time. Uh, this is in the late seventies, and I I just really needed that support. It saved me. Whether it's Dharma talks that you can just download at the touch of a of a button, or sitting groups, or good books. Um, Take advantage of Sangha. Here, this is, uh, let's see if I have it here. This is a poem from Dana Falls. Sangha, teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders, each for the other, 
that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous. To stay on this path day after day together, choosing the unknown and facing yet another fear, that is nothing short of grace. So this like-minded friendship, a huge support. His second suggestion to Magia is uh, the power of sila, is our own virtue, our own choices that we make that align ourselves with our values. It makes it, it's a lot easier here in these conditions where we're saying the precepts from time to time, you've taken them at the beginning of of the retreat and a few times since. And there's not all that many interactions. Still, thoughts come up where you say, "Hmm, I think I could strangle that person or uh, having thoughts of attraction or whatever. That's just part of the mind. But it's a lot easier to see here when you're going home um, to stay connected to the value and the power of sila that it is the great protection. And what it takes is just listening carefully when you're at that moment of choice, which I, I know everybody in this room knows where you can go one way or another, where you can click the send button or not. Or there's this step where you say, let's say if I do this, I don't know, but it feels right. Listen inside. We all are wired up to know it, it just takes listening more carefully. This is the, the, the wholesome mental factors of hiri and otapam, what are often translated as moral shame and moral dread, but really are talked of, uh, really our conscience, that we know better if we listen. And if you can just see on the front end and reflect how is this going to feel a little bit later when I look back on it? You'll save yourself so many mind moments of cleaning up or regret. It's, the, it's this mysterious way that the game is, is, is played where we're wired up to be so connected to the moment and how this is f- going to feel right now for immediate gratification and not so tuned into how it's going to feel later. I was speaking to somebody on, uh, uh, in an interview saying, I, I sometimes think of this practice as learning the power of delayed gratification. That, that's where spiritual maturity really comes in seeing, mm, it's not worth it. Perhaps you've seen this, and and I remember the first long retreat I, I did, when I, when I got out of it, uh, and people asked me what I got from it. I, 
I just kind of summed it up in saying, you know, I've, I'm seeing more and more, it's not worth the ripples in my mind to act in a way that, uh, that causes suffering. And I've had to learn that many, many times since that understanding. It's kind of humbling, isn't it? See, I think I know better, right? And then, what was I thinking? Yeah. So you have to be really kind and patient, but if each time you see, you learn from your mistakes, then there's no, nothing wasted. Nothing is wasted. And I w- as I was, I was saying to, uh, we were talking to somebody in an interview, it's reminding me that um, uh, the, the, the teaching on cringing that I, I like. You know, if you look back and you see something that you've done that was really unskillful, sometimes we can carry those around for years and years in our, in our hearts and our minds. Perhaps things have come up while you've been here on the retreat and you look back and you say, ooh, God, I can't believe I've done that. Oh, no. That actually, cringing is a really good sign because cringing means you're a different person now than you were then. And so take the cringing as a, as a sign that you've really learned. And as the Buddha said, reflect on what you've done and use it as a springboard to commit to doing things in a more skillful way in the future. So that's the second support, second protection. Third is right speech, wise speech. We create so much of our mind states by what comes out of our mouth. And uh, it's a lot easier in silence, isn't it? That's what chills out the mind. A big part of what chills out the mind. No interactions to, to replay over and over. Uh, and maybe in the last day or two, for those who are starting to talk, you've kind of seen how quickly that can get activated again. Be really kind with yourself. And just know that in your kind speech, you are uh, creating a, um, a peace inside. You know, the, the basic... Guidelines of saying what's truthful and what's useful. And what's useful means getting in touch with why you're saying what you're saying and to be sensitive to see if you can say it in a, wor- in a way that somebody can hear it and perhaps uh, getting a sense of if the timing is right. And it really creates a, a whole other space in the heart and the mind when we are coming from kindness, just seeing, is this to be right? Is it to show how much you know? Is it to control? Or is it done out of wished for greater communication? Because if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I, I, wanna, I wanna talk about something that I so value our relationship and something is getting in the way and I wanna share about it um, when you're ready, you might be really uh, open to hearing that. Certainly, 
probably a little bit more open than, uh, uh, are you ready for some feedback? You know, you know. I have something I want to clear with you. Are you ready? It's like, oh, I don't know. So just stay, getting in touch with your intention makes all the difference in the world. And you might also remember Sylvia's teaching, I could be wrong. It's a good one. <clears throat> See, there's different realities. <clears throat> the, the fourth of these supports that the Buddha says to Magia is um, what I talked about in the first, uh, the first talk about wise effort that is guarding against unwholesome states, learning to overcome them when they arise, cultivating wholesome states, and maintaining and increasing them when they arise too. So, guarding against unwholesome states, don't, not putting yourself in, in dangerous places, in places in your mind where you're tempted to do things that are unskillful. Uh, and only you know that. And when they arise, that's what we've, one, one half of what we've been doing here, learning to open up to our fears and our aversions and our wantings and our confusion with mindfulness, with metta, with compassion. That's a big part of what we've been doing, learning how to not be overwhelmed by unwholesome states. And when the wholesome states are here, well, first to cultivate those wholesome states, to really nourish yourself and, and find ways that, that you can feel the, the joy of genuine well-being by cultivating states like kindness and patience and compassion and, and equanimity. They can be cultivated. You've probably seen that in these, in these weeks. You can actually incline the mind. Not that you can make it happen at will, but you can open up to that possibility. And when they're here, to maintain and increase them by not missing them. And really let yourself feel the, um, the wholesomeness of your actions. Then the, uh, the fifth of the um, supports that the Buddha says to Magia is to reflect on impermanence, a continual reflection on impermanence. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, it will change. How could we miss it? How could we keep on forgetting? No matter how difficult things get, they will change. Isn't that comforting? No matter how fantastic things get, they will change. I don't know if that's comforting, but in the end, it is comforting when you see that life is about being here for the ride and there's no final resting place that you're trying to attain or achieve. 
you can just learn to be here for the whole ride. And so a continual reflection on impermanence, whether you are going home or whether you are staying here for the next month, uh, you can't go wrong. Because then you're not afraid to open up or as much afraid to open up to the, the challenges and you're not bewildered when, uh, when things change and they've been going so, so deliciously. This is the natural way of things. So this is the suggestion for supports for practice. Now I want to look at uh, the gifts that the practice brings to us and the gifts that we can share with, with the world, whether we're sitting here or we're going home. First of all, um, something to, uh, to tell both of those groups is you can't tell the fruits of your practice um, so obviously. You might think nothing is going on, nothing happened. I spaced out for four weeks and now going home and what am I going to say to my friends? You don't have to say anything other than um, I, I think I've learned something, you know. And perhaps it was, I found it very valuable. You don't have to exp- tell them all the details. And even more so, while you're in the middle of your, your process here, it's almost impossible to, to tell uh, just what is happening. At, at tea time, uh, Carol and I were, uh, were talking about uh, this friend that we've known for many years, and he just gave her a call uh, uh, the, today, I guess it was. And he calls each of us from, from time to time, a couple of times a year. Um, and he lives out in Kansas. He's now 82. He used to come to Yucca Valley um, every year. And um, uh, he's just so sincere and so unpretentious and just, uh, he was a a welder and worked on farms and uh, just uh, really out in the middle of the country. And somehow the Dharma just grabbed him and he would come to Yucca Valley each year. But he, it wasn't like he had great samadhi or... uh, uh, or, or in his own mind, deep practice. And he says, I don't know if anything's happening here, but I just keep on coming back and coming back. You know, sounds good, feels good. You guys tell me something good is happening, so I'll, I'll trust you. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, he gave me a call uh, a number of years ago now. And he said... Uh, Hey, James, I want to tell you about something that I uh, went through last few months. I said, yeah. He said, uh, had a big heart attack. I said, really, Ron? He said, yeah. Pretty serious. I thought it was going to be the, that was going to be it. I said, wow, that must have been intense. 
He said, well, the heart attack was bad enough, but then when I got into the hospital, they had me wired up to all these kinds of gizmos and, and, uh, and, and machines. <clears throat> and uh, right while I was there, all of a sudden, flatlining, or I, I was going down. And uh, everybody comes in, the whole team comes in. You could see they were running around, and, and I'm just looking there, and looking and looking at them and sensing them and the thought comes to me well if this is the last breath I want to be here for it I said wow Ron I think that stuff worked didn't it <laughs> he said yeah I guess it did after all huh? imagine that fortunately they they uh, brought him back and uh, he's still with us. But imagine that. Well, if this is my last breath, I just want to be f- here for it. As the whole team is f- frantically trying to revive this guy and there he is at ease and peace. It works. You don't know. You have no idea the seeds that you're sowing and how they're manifesting Every moment of mindfulness is weakening forces of greed, hatred, and delusion and cultivating forces of kindness, generosity, and and wisdom. There's nothing wasted. And so you just keep on showing up with that sincerity and that commitment and facing in the right direction and you don't have to worry about giving yourself a report card or seeing how it's going. I want to talk about other gifts of practice, gifts that come through you that you have to share. And particularly, I want to talk and, and follow up on, on uh, Guy's talk uh, that he gave a couple of few nights ago on connectedness it was really a a beautiful talk talking about the inspiration that we can um, we can see and be moved by is just coming out of the caring heart <clears throat> we're all connected and this practice not only drives that home more on a direct understanding of of that truth but uh, becomes a a source of acting in the world. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about um, how even in a sheet of paper, you can see the whole universe, you can see the whole world, the sun and the rain and uh, and the the trees and the the logger and the 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 parents of the logger and and all the things that that went into making this sheet of paper it's all so interconnected and the more you really tune into that uh, the more amazed you can be by life Let's see if I can this oh, here it is this is from uh, a beautiful book on compassion 
I, I think I put it on my, the book originally was entitled Field Notes on the Compassionate Life. It's now uh, um, been um, reprinted as The Compassionate Life by Mark Ian Barish. <clears throat> it's a beautiful book. <clears throat> he says, uh, he, des- he describes, Mark describes how a research scientist put some yogurt in a Petri dish near him and placed some electrodes in the dish. And the needle just sat there. And then he asked Mark to think about some deeply disturbing emotional experience. And this is Mark writing. Rummaging through memory, I had a sudden flash of my sister's death, and I was flooded with a surge of grief. At that very moment, all by itself, the needle on the meter buried itself in the red zone, then oscillated wildly back and forth. We hadn't touched anything. The box was hooked up to nothing except the yogurt, strawberry, my favorite. (laughs) Nothing in the room had changed but my feelings. When I switched my mental focus back to my surroundings, the needle went still. Okay, the scientist said, now think of an incident of physical pain. I called to mind a recent medical checkup that had involved taking several blood samples. The needle kicked fitfully like a man whose sleep had been disturbed. He had me remember a moment of profound embarrassment, I'm not telling, and again the needle twitched abruptly as if in response. What was being revealed here, he claimed, was that all living creatures from microorganisms to pets to people resonate to the field of our human heart. It's so mysterious. If yogurt can feel the effects of your heart, then probably those around you can too. (laughs) So what we do uh, makes a difference. When you come here on retreat, sometimes people don't understand what you're doing. And it might seem very self-indulgent, but what you're doing here really makes a difference. I remember the, the, first, the first time I did a three-month retreat, my parents were kind of like slightly freaking out, like, what has he gotten into? Okay. But the second time I did it, they said, didn't you get it the last time? <laughs> As time went on, it became more and more something that they saw that there was, there was some value to it and they stopped uh, giving me a hard time. It's really hard to describe though, but something starts to change within you. And this is a profound process of purification that we're going through that just in this very mysterious way opens up our hearts creates enough space to see things more clearly and makes us better human beings. And within that being a better human being, we can't help but affect everybody around us. And to understand that this is not just a nice byproduct of the practice, but really one of the most important aspects of this practice, it up-levels our whole 
motivation and uh, inspiration for practicing. <clears throat> to see that this is not just for yourself. This is from Nyoshal Kempo, um, a, a great Tibetan master. We are not practicing for ourselves alone since everybody is involved, is included in the great scope of our perfectly pure motivation and meditation. The natural outflow of so-called solitary meditation or prayer is the spontaneous benefit for others. It's like the rays of the sun, rays which sooner or later spontaneously reach out. This good heart, pure heart, vast and open mind, this is innate bodhicitta, this guy was talking about. It's not something foreign to us, as we well know, yet it is something we could relate to more, cultivate, generate, and embody. We talk about vast and profound teachings of Dharma, but without this goodness of heart, this unselfishness, it is mere chatter, gossip, and rationalization. We are not practicing for ourselves alone. Whatever else we might do, sorry, since everyone is involved in this great scope to benefit others, if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, and transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. We are all bodhisattvas in training. No matter what level of bodhisattvahood you're, you're at, when you go through something really hard, this is a great gift to everybody in your life who you will see, who says, I'm going through something really hard and you can be there and say, yeah, I know what that's like and I'm right here with you. What a gift. And it's also helpful to consciously widen our vision, to intentionally widen our vision and to see there are ways that we can express our practice um, when it feels right in addition to our quiet internal practice. There's an internal aspect of the Dharma and an external expression of Dharma practice. This is um, a, a very powerful essay um, that uh, you can look on the internet written by uh, uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, a few years ago called A Challenge to Buddhists. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, as probably most of you know, is the premier translator of um, of the Pali Canon. He's the one who did the thick versions of the Majjhima Nikaya and the Samyutta Nikaya and Anguttara Nikaya uh, and um, really is an incredible benefactor to all of us who um, wrote this challenge. In Buddhism in the West, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way 
and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. Buddhist teachers often say that the most effective way we can help protect the world is by purifying our own minds, or that before we engage in compassionate action, we must attain realization of selflessness or emptiness. There may be some truth in such statements, but I think it is a partial truth. In these critical times, we also have an obligation to aid those immersed in the world who live on the brink of destitution and despair. The Buddha's mission, the reason for his arising in the world, was to free beings from suffering by uprooting the evil roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. <clears throat> this, sorry, to help free beings from suffering today, therefore, requires that we counter the systemic embodiments of greed, hatred, and delusion. In each historical period, the Dharma finds new means to unfold its potentials in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical stage for the transcendent truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels even the lowest, harshest, and most degrading levels, not in mere contemplation, but in effective relief-granting action illuminated by its own world-transcending goal. The special fa challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge, marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. And Bhikkhu Bodhi has in recent years become a tremendous activist as well as a tremendous translator of the teachings. And he founded Buddhist Global Relief, which has raised thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to feed hungry in all parts of the world. Uh, he's been very, very active in climate change and has helped to um, um, create a statement which is out now uh, on uh, Dharma teacher's response to climate change, um, which I'll talk about in a moment. So he kind of, he walks his talk. This is what Buddhism the, the possibilities of Buddhism, as, uh, as perhaps you're familiar with Arnold Toynbee, the, the great historian, his, his, um, prophes his um, 
um, vision saying that um, he thought that perhaps the most significant event in the 20th century, looking back in years to come, will be Buddhism coming to the West. Uh, How he had that amazing foresight, um, it's quite extraordinary. But when you think about whether you call it Buddhism or consciousness coming to infuse and uh, wake up our Western world gone crazy, uh, it perhaps will be. As my my friend Roger Walsh says, um, we are uh, in a race between fear and consciousness. And we, whether we like it or not, we are very important carriers of that consciousness. And it can be a joyful responsibility to express our Dharma practice in ways that have truly um, beneficial effects. It is a joyful responsibility because it's expressing our compassion. You know, compassion, one of the Brahma Viharas, one of the four sublime states. Compassion is loving kindness in the face of suffering. The heart is evoked, is moved to compassion. And it always has intrigued me that this sublime state requires suffering. It's not that suffering is sublime. Suffering is not sublime. But the caring that it evokes is sublime. And when we can express that caring, it becomes a joy. Martin Seligman, who, who wrote Authentic Happiness, the, 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 uh, the beginning of the positive psychology movement, um, the, the book Authentic Happiness really um, comes down to, he says, what real authentic happiness is finding what our gifts are in the world, what our strengths are, and expressing them in a spirit of contribution. That's where the real happiness is. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, compassion is a verb. And we can find different ways to express our practice so that others benefit. I want to say one major way is, as Neosho Kempo said, just deepening our own practice. Don't, don't feel that you're not doing enough if, you are, if you're in the middle of your inward uh, period in your life where your own deepening is calling you so deeply because that has its own radiant benefits. And when we're out in the world, there's so much suffering around and to 
uh, find ways to express our caring uh, is the gift of practice. It can be very, very noble, or it can be very, very simple, just being there for the people who we care about. But as uh, Angelus Arian, uh, one of the real wisdom teachers of, of our time, says, action absorbs anxiety. Action absorbs anxiety. When we're f- we open our hearts to, our suffer- to suffering around us, when we act in some way and express our caring, there's a, a, a relief. I was thinking about just the, the, the people here, the, my, the colleagues on, on this retreat. You know, Carol talking about her, her time in Burma and you can feel the joy that she gets in just sharing what, what, she's, uh, uh, um, what she can offer in little ways that she, that she can that are very, very big and meaningful. Where Greg, we're talking at tea time, he's gone to Burma 15 times as part of that Metadana project and talking about the joy that comes from that. Um, or Guy who's not only so deeply committed to internal his own internal practice but has given countless hours in meetings and guiding this place this meditation hall and the the next phase will come out of his his caring because that's his way to give uh and Andrea, the same with uh, IRC, with the uh, the retreat center down in uh, in uh, in Redwood City and in, uh, in uh, uh, Peninsula, and all of her teaching, and uh, leading the DPP and uh, coordinating the teacher training, they've all found their own ways of sharing their practice. Here's a story. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you. Uh, yeah, somebody who was sitting on this retreat a number of years ago, who wrote this um, on a retreat at Spirit Rock, in one of those necessary breaks of the silence during a work period, I learned that one of my fellow retreatants was in end-stage renal disease and needed a kidney. A number of years before, my first Zen Buddhist teacher had donated a kidney to someone in need, and I thought at the time, you know, I could do that. It seemed like now was the time. Eleven months later, with caring support from teachers, family, and community, the kidney donation happened anonymously. The experience has been a profound time of practice of understanding community in a much deeper way and experiencing the joys of generosity. It's clear that this occurrence, the transfer of a kidney from one body to another, would not have happened without the support, inspiration, connections, and the overall interdependence of my community. This was one of the most joyous periods in my life. At some point, the lines blurred between giving and receiving The person who received this kidney must have done extraordinarily generous things in this and other lives to draw this karma into this life. Who is to say who gave and who received what? 
When did this kidney become mine and when did it stop being mine? I am profoundly grateful for receiving the opportunity to give and receive. I had this strange sense that I'd been taking care of someone else's kidney for them all these years <laughs> and now is giving it. It was such a clear teaching at the deep level that we're not our bodies. I just feel joy, free, ease, caring, and cared for. Now, we can't all be that noble. So I'm not saying go out and give a kidney. Uh, Don't worry about choosing your path. Just keep practicing and listening and uh, it will choose you if you keep on listening inside to what moves you. The suffering of the world or the suffering of those nearby you. For me, in the last few years, climate change has been uh, something that kind of grabbed me. And um, I, I read Bill McKibben's book, Earth, a couple of, now about three or four years ago. E-A-A-R-T-H. It was a very sobering book when I saw what we're, what we're um, heading for. And uh, it really shook me deeply. And I said, I don't know what I can do, but I've got to do something. And I didn't know what I could do. But uh, in this, this last year, when I, I had the chance to, um, to help organize the uh, International Vipassana Teachers Conference, I knew I wanted um, a friend of mine to come and uh, have... Uh, climate change on the agenda. My friend, uh, whose name is Bob Doppelt, is one of the main players in uh, sustainability and climate change and and works with uh, the White House to help them shape their their messages and uh, wrote a beautiful book, From Me to We, uh, about how the Dharma can change what's uh, this situation or can steer it in the right direction. And um, I said, wow, Bob, it's so great that your Dharma practice, uh, I know him as a longtime practitioner, and your sustainability um, career uh, have come together. And he said, James, the Dharma holds the key if there's going to be any healing in this. And I said, wow, okay, I want all the teachers in our community to hear that. The Dharma holds the key. And out of that, he gave a beautiful presentation and there's been this whole uh, uprising of, uh, of caring in our Sangha around climate change. And there's a beautiful website called One Earth Sangha that has this statement that Bhikkhu Bodhi and Tara Brock and about a dozen or so teachers uh, uh, um, worked on for about six months about how we can use the Dharma to address uh, to address the uh, this this uh, crisis. Now, what is it? I just looked today. There's 417 Dharma teachers who've signed it. 948 Sangha members. Is just it's just been up in the last month or so. So I. I uh, encourage you to check it out. Now you might say, oh my goodness, how can I, it's so immense. For me, it's like, oh, 
how could I begin to address this with not being completely overwhelmed? And I've been very inspired by a, a book that I highly recommend. I don't know if it was on my book list, but um, it's been a great book called uh, The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism by Andrew Harvey. And what he talks about, I don't have time to go into it now, are the, po- the ways that we are now facing what he calls a dark night of the species. You know, the dark night of the soul, and probably you've experienced, many have experienced it, where you go through the darkest places in your retreat, on your practice, and you say, oh my goodness, can I ever get through this? And it becomes, it's the hero's journey that becomes the gateway to a, a deep awakening. And he, and I, I really feel this, sees this, and another, a, a number of others have seen this. We are going through the end of an unsustainable uh, way that humanity is on this planet. And it's, there's going to be some real suffering and real, uh, real pain and sor- sorrow and sadness but it can be held in an awa- the possibility of awakening to a new way that we have never experienced before, an awakening of humanity. And we can all be part of that. How exciting. How exciting to, to find the courage, being a warrior that is not afraid to share our light and our vision and our goodness because that's what is contagious and in out of these these very difficult times we see so many amazing possibilities in in the book andrew harvey talks about the the crisis um waking us up and he quotes paul hawken in his book blessed unrest who uh, researched and found that in the last uh, couple of decades there have arisen now between one and two million organizations actively working towards ecology and social justice. And that there's technology in a way that never was possible before, a, democ- a democratization of media where there's instant connection and a spiritual renaissance that we've never seen before on this planet. And an evolving philosophy of nonviolence and a return to the divine feminine, opening up and seeing that uh, the guys didn't, haven't done such a good job and we need a little bit more compassion. This is what's going to save us. Anyway, lots and lots of possibilities. So... Uh, as uh, as the Chinese characters say, uh, crisis is danger plus opportunity. And here we are practicing so caringly, so diligently, we have gifts to share in whatever small or large way, whether it's just 
having the contagious compassion of those nearest to us or finding whatever way inspires us to make a difference in the world, seeing our practice in a much bigger context. That's what we're doing. And that's what we've, we've all supported each other doing together for this last month. How amazing, as the Tibetans say, Emaho, how amazing, how marvelous. So let's sit for a moment. Just feeling the the blessings of your good karma to have practiced, all of us practicing together for this month and developing those seeds of caring and wisdom and love. And now we get to share them with the world.